All right, here we go. Let's get into this today. Um, so in the, in the great tradition of ancient Israel, in the, in the great practice of Jesus himself, uh, and also in line with uh, great leaders in church history, I want to tell you a story. God gives us stories to inspire us and to get truth deeper into our hearts. So in the great tradition of Jesus, I want to tell you, I want to start with a story. I want to tell you about Nicole Hamilton. Nicole Hamilton would visit her husband in prison, Derek, and in the prison courtyard, they would pretend, they would imagine that they were in Central Park in New York City, and they would buy snacks from the vending machine, and they would put the snacks on the, the bench in the, court, in, the, in the prison courtyard and pretend that it was a picnic in Central Park. This was their practice, and they were trying to make the most, make the best out of an awful situation, an abnormal situation. They'd been married for many years, but their marriage had to endure things that most married couples could never even dream about happening. And Derek's life took a turn for the worse when he was wrongly accused of second-degree murder. This happened in uh, 1991. And he was accused of murdering, of shooting and killing Nathaniel Cash. And even though Derek had two eyewitnesses that gave him an alibi, it didn't make a difference. They threw the book at him and they convicted him of second-degree murder, so he went to prison in 1992. In prison, he started studying law in an attempt to, because he maintained his innocence, and he wanted to try to free himself. And so it was his interest in the law and his love for the law that one of the things that kept him sane in prison, he was in solitary confinement for 10 years. He, could, he was only allowed out of his cell for one hour in a 24-hour period. So 23 hours in a small cell, reading law books, writing law drafts, trying to get different motions going to try to uh, appeal his conviction was one of the only things that kept him sane as other inmates would bang on the wall and scream around him. After time, he got so good at law and so studied in the law that he became known as, or he built a reputation as being uh, one of the most successful jailhouse lawyers, attorneys in the state. Nicole had met him just before he had been incarcerated, and she was the only friend uh, after his incarceration, they actually went to visit him. Only a couple of people went, and she was one of them who would regularly go and visit him. And then in 2005, they were married by a law clerk in the correctional facility. And she would travel on weekends. She lived in Connecticut. She would drive six hours to go visit him and then drive six hours back. And she, year after year, worked on the outside to seek justice for her husband. She would call his lawyers, make sure they were working on his case. She would file the, the motions and the briefs that he had prepared in prison. She would do as much as she could on the outside to try and seek her husband's freedom. But she was in her own kind of prison as well. She was worried the days that she couldn't call him, the weekends where she wasn't able to visit him, his, what would his mental state be like? This was brutal, especially being in 
solitary confinement for so long. She was so concerned for him. She had children from a previous marriage that she was raising by herself. She had to support herself. Uh, Her work supported herself, her kids, and also her husband in prison. And she was a lifeline to him. Her phone calls meant the world to him. Well, year after year, Derek appealed and appealed and appealed without success. He had been 28 years old when he'd been incarcerated And now it had been 20 years had passed. And he knew sorrow. He felt the desperation of separation from Nicole and his family, the longing to be reunited, the desire to be with them again. What would happen to Derek Hamilton? And I'm going to pause the story there. I'm going to give you the conclusion at the end of the sermon, and it's going to relate to our passage today that we're going to be looking at. So today we're jumping back into a series that we started last year called The Real Jesus. And uh, this series is an adventure, a journey through the Gospel of Mark. And if you want to catch up with uh, the sermons we've already done in this series, you can go to tri.church slash mark, tri.church slash m-a-r-k, mark. And uh, you can catch up there if you're interested in, in catching up. But we're jumping back in today. We're going to be Mark chapter 2 verse 18, and um, what we've got to do is, and what we want to do with this series is, we want to look at the real Jesus, not the Jesus of culture or Jesus of people's imagination or the Jesus that we would like to think of. We've got to look at the Jesus who his friends told us about, who were with Jesus when he walked the earth. We've got to look at that Jesus, because that's the Jesus who can truly transform us, who can set us free, who can satisfy us. So far on this series, just to recap very quickly, we looked at the nature of the gospel, the good news of grace. That comes very clearly through the gospel of Mark. We've looked at Jesus' baptism and all that that meant. We've looked at Jesus' identity. Uh, We've looked at Jesus' time of testing in the wilderness. Uh, We looked at him calling the disciples to become fishers of men. We looked at his authority. We looked at Jesus healing the sick. Also healing the sickness of the human heart as well. And so we continue today. Let me pray and then we're going to read Scripture. Lord, we thank you you're with us. We thank you for your life. And we pray that we would know you truly, not just what we think you are, but but to know who you are. Lord, that, that you'd set us free from all darkness, all evil, all sin, from Satan and demons. Lord, you'd set us free. And Lord, you'd help us to live truly for you, obeying you, trusting you, and knowing you and enjoying you. God, fill us with your power and speak to us through your word today. And I pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, I pray you bring them all the way in, just as you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, that's to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old. 
and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is God's word. Now, as always, the people are very perplexed about Jesus. People can't figure Jesus out. Jesus is out of step with all of the religious leaders. We expect him to be out of step with the Pharisees. They're the worst, aren't they? They're just the worst. So we expect him to be different from the Pharisees, but also Jesus is out of step with John's disciples. John, the baptizer, was a very highly respected leader. Everyone loved John. He's like an Old Testament prophet type. Everyone, he brought a renewal to Israel in Jesus' day, preparing the way for Jesus. So everyone loved John. John's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees are fasting. Jesus and his disciples are not fasting. This is a big problem. This is a big deal for people. Fasting mattered greatly at this time. If you were serious about your faith, you're serious about your belief in the God of Israel, you fasted. You better fast. It was commanded. You, you should be fasting. It, it, it mattered. And so Jesus is again out of step, and this tension is being created. You see it growing in the Gospels. The tension between Jesus and the religious elites. And this is ultimately why they murdered him, is because he kept breaking their expectations and taking away their power and redefining things that they couldn't cope with. They just couldn't cope with it. And so people approach Jesus, and they, they're scratching their heads. They can't figure it out. Well, John's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees and their disciples are fasting. But Jesus, you're like a really big deal, and you've got these disciples, and you're not fasting. Why is this? And this is wonderful for us, because if we're struggling with Christianity... We're struggling with something in the Bible, something with Jesus. Rather than just coming up with our own opinions and just thinking we know the answers, we need to do what these people did and come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm so confused. I don't understand. How is this different? Why are you doing this thing differently to what I expected? Help me understand. Explain it to me. You know, you can approach God and ask all those kind of questions, right? We've got to do that. We've got to search And be honest about it. Not come with our own conclusions, but be honest about it. Now, Jesus has no problem with fasting. That's not the issue here. Jesus is not against fasting. He's all for it. The issue was that while Jesus was on earth during his ministry with his disciples, this was not the time for fasting. And he he describes himself, um, he makes this parallel with, like, he's like the bridegroom at a wedding. And so the disciples or his followers are like the bride. And and this is why uh, the church is called the Bride of Christ, Right comes from, from Jesus here. Actually, it goes even further back than that. Uh, ancient Israel, so I think it was Isaiah and Isaiah 62, roughly. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, uh, in his words, he as he's prophesying, uh, God is. He describes God as the husband of the Israelites. So in Jesus saying that he's the bridegroom, and that while the bridegroom's here, you don't fast. He, in describing himself as the bridegroom, it's a huge clue about Jesus' identity. Jesus is affirming again, he is the God of the Old Testament. So we have to get this clear in our minds, to be a Christian is to wholeheartedly and fully be convinced and believe in the divinity of Jesus. He's not a created being, he's not just a souped up man. He's the eternal God, God in the flesh come to us. Father, Son, and Spirit, this amazing trinity, 
one of those persons come to us. And Jesus, he's saying, he's saying, I'm the bridegroom. He's saying, I'm like the husband of Israel. Well, that's what Isaiah prophesied about Yahweh. Jesus is claiming that identity. It's amazing. And then when we're face to face with Jesus, it'll be like a wedding feast. And we'll celebrate and thank God we won't have to fast anymore when we're there. Anyone like to fast? Fasting is hard. It's very hard. I know my least favorite things to do. The kingdom of God is described like a wedding, like this wedding feast. And if you know anything about Jewish weddings, you know they're a big deal. They lasted for about seven days. And uh, the you know, guests are invited, right? When you're invited to a Jewish wedding, so it goes on for a long time, they've got tons of food. A seven-day wedding. Can you imagine it? Food, copious amounts of food. You're supposed to stuff your face. That's the point. You're supposed, it's a feast. Uh, loads of wine, supposed to drink a bunch of wine, uh, lots of singing and dancing, supposed to have all kinds of fun. This is the idea of a wedding. And so could you imagine a relative showing up to your wedding and saying, well, I'm so sorry, but I'm fasting right now. My religious practices require that I have to abstain from your lovely, luxurious foods and your wonderful wedding cake. No one in their right mind is going to say anything like that. You don't fast at a wedding. Have you ever met anybody who's fasting at a wedding? Right? If you're fasting and you get invited to a wedding, guess what happens to your fast? You break your fast. That's what happens, because you're at a wedding. So while the bridegroom is here, it's festivity, it's celebration, it's enjoyment... But Jesus, without the bridegroom, well, you're going to fast. And that fasting is a reflection of the distance, the gap, the sorrowful gap, and the longing to be reconnected with your bridegroom. There's also types of fasting in the Old Testament. Um, we're told different, different examples, different ways of fasting. Uh, there was one day a year where the people of Israel were commanded on the Day of Atonement they all had to fast, 24-hour period, so it's commanded in the Scriptures. So, and then also for Jews in the Mishnah, it also spells out three other fasts uh, that they would follow, and um, those would probably be 12-hour periods. And then there could be other voluntary fasting. With this example here from Mark chapter 2, we don't know. It just says that the disciples of John fast and the Pharisees fast. We don't know, is it the Day of Atonement? Or is it a voluntary fast? Is it one of these three fasts from the Mishnah? We don't know exactly what it is, but we know that Jesus is saying, actually, you don't fast while I'm around. That would be really, be really hard for a religious person who's like, we have a command from God that you're supposed to fast. And they don't understand who Jesus is. So Jesus is like, well, I'm the guy who made the law. So, you know, we're hitting the pause button on that one just for a little bit. That's the way this works with, with Jesus. So fasting, biblically speaking, is to give up food. You still drink water, but you give up food. Some people nowadays try to fast in other ways, fasting social media, all these different things, and that's fine, but that's not really biblical fasting. Biblical fasting is to not eat food. That's what it means. And to, you still drink water, so don't forget that. And, and to give us an idea of what fasting meant to them when Jesus is talking about fasting here, they would also intentionally especially on the Day of Atonement or other fast they did, they would mourn and they would wear sackcloth. 
And that's a, a very uncomfortable material. So rather than wearing their nice, normal, comfortable clothes, they would wear material that irritated their skin. So not only are they intentionally bringing hardship internally in their body through fasting and feeling weak in that way, but they're also on the outside wearing this sackcloth. And we're also told, you know, when you fast, hey, don't boast in it. Don't, don't make yourself look gaunt. Don't, you know, wash your face. You know, make yourself, you know, don't, don't boast in that. Don't become across pious. So you want to be careful about that. But, but the, nonetheless, the idea of fasting is supposed to be a sorrowful, mournful, sad experience. It's hard. It's hard to, get, to go without food. What's the longest you've been ever been without food before? Well, think about the longest. It's, 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 you can't think straight. You're panicky. I mean, if you're fasting and you've got food, you're not worried about having food. But if you're, if you're starving because there's no food around, you're, you're worried, where, you know, am I going to die? Like, where am I going to get food from? I mean, going without food is, is hard. Fasting is hard, but it's worship. When Christians fast... We're worshiping God. We're declaring that Jesus is our bread. Jesus is our food. We need him and only him. In fact, he's the one that even makes the bread, the actual bread that we eat. He's the one that makes it work. He's the one that that grew it. He's the one that created it. He's the one that makes it all go together and helps us, helps our digestive system actually get the nutrients out of. He's the one that makes it all work in the first place. So when we give up food, what we're declaring is, it's Jesus, only Jesus, and always Jesus. I need him more than anything else in my life. And so Christians have to fast. We have to fast because it's worship, and we're worshipers. And even in this passage here, it's, it's assumed, isn't it? Hey, the bridegroom's going to be taken, and in that day you will fast. Jesus is saying, you've got to fast. Believers, are you fasting? In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus also puts it this way. He says, when you fast. So even in that Gospel, he's not saying, by the way, he's not even, it's beyond a command to fast. It's just an assumption. When you do it, when you fast, this is how you're supposed to do it. Fasting amplifies our prayers. Fasting deepens our faith. Fasting strengthens and refines our character because you have to deal with moods. When you're fasting, you get desperate, you get unfocused, you get panicky, you get weak. And you have to practice that self-control and try and relate to people with patience. It's hard to do that. But fasting also grows our compassion for the poor and the needy, those who are without food, not because of their choice, but because of their circumstances, those who are literally starving. As we fast, we see human frailty and we can have a deeper heart for those who do go without, but the greatest reason to, to fast is to seek God's presence. We fast because we seek God's presence. And when we fast from food, we, we pray. We use that time. Instead of the, the, the meal prep time and the, the, the eating time, we, we say we're going to pray. We can be in the Word. We can, we can read Scripture as well. We can give thanks to God. We can sing, any kind of spiritual devotion. But we say, that yeah, the, instead of using this time to eat or prepare food, I'm a spiritual devotion to God. And it, it's a sorrowful time. Fasting is a, a sorrowful time. It's, as you give up food, you get weak. You, you struggle. But then, but then when you break your fast and then you feast again, you rejoice all the more, don't you? You, you feel that, right? If you've broken your fast and you, you, you have food again, you're like, this t- food tastes incredible. Like, how did I forget this? That's, honestly, it's, it's, it's a sign to us 
yes, this life is a fast. We're, we're, we're giving this up, but then as we break our fast and we're, we rejoice with feasting, if we, think this, if we think this is good, how much better is it going to be when we're with Jesus face to face, the true feast that we're going to be with, with Jesus? And when Jesus says the bridegroom is going to be taken, this is a subtle prediction of his own death. At the time, they wouldn't have realized it. They couldn't have imagined Jesus being crucified and they had no idea he was going to die for the sins of the world. They had no idea all of that plan. But, but, but this is a little Easter egg hidden here in the Bible. And then in hindsight, they would have looked back and gone, oh my gosh, that's what he meant. The bridegroom is going to be taken. And this is a very jarring image, isn't it? I mean, what should be somebody's happiest day? The happiest day, you know, if, if you get married, ideally the happiest day of your life is, is probably your wedding day. You know, people pour a lot of expenses into their wedding and Families come together and people make these promises together. It's a big, you make a big deal out of that ceremony because it should be one of the happiest days of somebody's life if, they're, if you're called to be married. Not everyone gets married. Marriage is not the apex of human experience, but most people want to get married and do get married. And it should be a joyful thing when it happens. And so the idea of you've been married, but before the, the honeymoon even happens, the bridegroom is taken away. Wow. That's, that, that, that's a great storyline right there. Jesus, see, Jesus is the master storyteller. He's always telling parables, telling these stories, trying to get truth across to us in a spiritual, emotional way to get the things deeper into our heart, not just giving us facts and reasons and logic, but giving us characters and narrative and stories to help us to understand we're, we're, we're God's children created to be in a loving relationship with Him. That's the power of a story is you're caught up in the action of it, the, the anticipation of it, and the drama of it. You, know, you should wish for more trouble in your life because then on the other side of the trouble, the greater your life is. That's the way, that's the way good storytelling works. So the high point, you're married, wow. But then on a wedding day, the bridegroom is taken. Whew. That's a story. That's going to be the next script of the next Liam Neeson Taken movie, maybe. I think it should be. John the baptizer had already been taken. right? They respected John. John is a spiritual leader. He is bringing about a spiritual renewal and revival in Israel. But he'd been arrested by Herod, imprisoned, soon to be beheaded. Man, their, their, their awesome leader had been taken. This is tragic. And now Jesus is saying he's the bridegroom, and he also is going to be taken. He's going to be taken away from them. I, I can almost imagine, you know, I mean, it really, it's a, you know, Jesus is the master of this, right? Because he... It's, it's like, this is like the, probably the shortest parable that Jesus ever told. You know, these parables are usually longer, right? You've got like the, the prodigal son. You've got, you know, all these different, you know, uh, uh, parables um, that, that, that happen. But then in this one, it's like it's just a few statements. You know, the bridegroom's going to be taken. It's like, oh, my gosh, this is at the height of something. Before the, even the honeymoon, at the height of celebration, I, I, I try to find stories of a bridegroom being abducted from his wedding. Couldn't find any stories of this happening. I found stories of people being abducted and being forced to be married to other people. I found lots of stories of that happening. But I didn't find stories of, of, a, of a, I'm sure there's a story out there about it, of a bridegroom being taken from his wedding day. This is why this is such a jarring story, because you're like, this is the last thing that should ever happen. This is an epic movie plot line story. I mean, you can almost imagine the movie trailer, right? It's like, the, the, this summer, the bride in love. The groom taken. Can you, can you imagine it? Inconsolable. Right? 
could the, could the bride, could she, could she celebrate at her, at her reception? Could she eat the cake? Could she eat the foods? Would she be able to even stomach anything at that point? No. Can anybody celebrate? Are people going to be dancing and celebrating if the, if the bridegroom is taken? It's, it's not going to happen because this is a tragic moment. This is a break that shouldn't be happening. This is, and this is the powerful storyline, that the tension that Jesus is creating that maps onto our lives, that applies to our lives, that you know, the idea that food tastes better when you go without it. So this life is like a fast. And then when you break your fast and you feast, you realize how good it is. And when in this life, we're without Jesus. But don't you see how good it's going to be when we're with Jesus, when we're reunited with Jesus again? At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he fasted, right? He went into the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. He had to battle evil, and he fasted. We need to mimic Jesus. We need to go into the wilderness of fasting, we need to go into the wilderness of despair, into the wilderness of weakness, to say, not in my strength, not by my flesh, not by what I can do, but by God's power, and only by God's power. At Trinity Church, we have prayer and fasting. And, and I've I got to tell you, this is one of the biggest failures of the American church and Western churches, is that we love our food way too much. As a culture, we, we love our food too much, and we don't know, how, we don't know the, the spiritual discipline of fasting. So as a church, we plan out prayer and fasting throughout the year. We have several of these. And um, I want to see more of you, Adam. I'm just going to say it. Some of you don't come and need to stop not coming. And start doing the thing you should be doing. You start coming. Because, and so make, make sure you're subscribed to our calendar. We actually have um, some, we have a link there, try.church slash calendar. Subscribe to our church calendar. We've got three dates coming up, actually. We're doing some prayer and fasting. I'm going to spring this on you right here. I think we have another slide for this. Um, January 15th, 22nd, and 29th. That's not starting tomorrow, but the next three Mondays, 7 till 9. We're going to worship. We're going to pray. We'll be here in the lobby. We're going to pray and fast together. Maybe you can fast a meal. Maybe you can fast the whole day. Even if you really can't fast, still come and pray. But we're going to pray. We're going to worship. We're going to sing to God. And specifically, we're going to pray that God would deliver this building into our hands. We're going we're gonna to really seek God. God, give us all the funding. Give us favor. Give us a, you know, people to lend us money and help us make those payments. We're going to pray for all of that. God, we're going to seek God because we have to be dependent on Him. doesn't matter how much we add up the numbers. doesn't matter how much we, we have strategy and we plan. It doesn't, all of that, you've got, you got to do it. You've got to be responsible, right? God wants us to be responsible. You, take, you check those boxes, but if you don't pray, if you don't seek God, none of it matters. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We've got someone clapping over here. Let's all clap because we've got, we got a clapper. Yes, thank you. So mark these dates down. We're going to be praying and fasting together these three Mondays. And we've got to do it. We've got to seek God. We're going to start the year off strong, spiritually strong, saying it's about God. It's about Jesus. It's about following him and his ways. Then Jesus, in talking about the bridegroom being taken, talking about this fasting stuff, then he goes into this very famous passage, actually, this famous little section here. It's part of the story where he talks about um, a, a new patch of, of a, new, a new patch of clothing being sewn onto an, an old patch of clothing or an old garment, right? And then the idea that while well, that new patch hasn't shrunk yet, and so so if you if you sew it on and it shrinks, it's going to tear it even more. Or or the idea of new wine, new wine is still fermenting, it's still expanding, and so if you, if you take old wine skin, that's now it's it's brittle, 
uh, and it's fragile. And if, if you pour the new wine into that, well, that new wine's going to ferment and expand, and it's going to break, it's going to burst, you're going to destroy both. What's going on here? What's Jesus describing here? Well, he's saying in, in his new ministry, God coming to the earth in flesh to shake things up, to change things a bit, in this, this new testament, this new covenant that Jesus has come to bring, things are changing. There's, there's a transformation that's occurring. And specifically as it relates to fasting. So, so he's hit the pause button on fasting. So during this period, yeah, we, we, don't, we don't need to fast. But when the bridegroom's gone, then, my people, they will return to fasting. But when they return to fasting, they're not going to follow the Day of Atonement as they would have before. There's still going to be an expectation that they will fast, but it's not going to be a moral imperative or a moral commandment that you follow that one Day of Atonement. So that ended, but the idea of fasting still continued on. And this, this is the headache that people have about Jesus, about relating what happened in the first big chunk of the Bible, the Old Testament, the first covenant. I don't like calling it the Old Testament because it makes it sound like it's obsolete, which it's not. It's the first one. There's the first and the second. This is the, the big lesson that we get from, from Jesus, from the, the patches on the clothing and from the wine in the wineskin. This is the big lesson that we get from Jesus, is that you, you can't take Jesus and separate him from the old scriptures. You can't cut you know, the connection between Old and New Testaments. You can't just separate them from each other. Also, in the same way you can't do that, you also can't just slap Jesus on top of the Old Testament and say, well, you go, boom, that's how it works. Because Jesus says you can't just pour the, the new wine into the old wineskin. Some of these things have been transformed. Some of these things have been changed. It's, it's much more of a mosaic that's put two halves that are put together to make a whole picture. So think about it like this. If you sample uh, aged wine, somebody brings you very expensive old wine that's been in some, some person, rich person's cellar for, for, for decades or who, whoever knows how long. So this is the one from the whatever year, that, you know, something amazing, and you drink it and you're like, this is incredible. Wow, you're blown away. That's like, that's like a picture of the Old Testament. And then someone gives you new wine, and you taste that new wine, and you're like, this is incredible. This is, I see, it's the same maker, but they, it's like an upgrade. They changed it, and it completes it somehow. But there's different ways to think about this. If you had old wine in, in, old wine skin, in the original wineskin hanging up in your house, in your kitchen, or in your pantry, or wherever you have that, but then someone makes new wine, what you do is you get new wineskins. You put the new wine in the new wineskin, but the way the Bible works is... is you don't throw away the old one. You put the new one up next to the old one. So they're side by side. They're both there. Let me paint the picture like this. Let's say somebody cooks you a meal, and, but they cook the meal in the old wine, right? In the old, in the old covenant, in the Old Testament. They cook it, and that's all the flavors in there. And, then you, and they serve you the meal, and you're sitting there eating the meal, and you're like, this tastes incredible. Wow, I can, I can, I can taste. It's, it's like a taste sensation. It's like, but it, it's so rich, and the heritage, I love it. All the, all the backstory to it, and where it came from, and what it stands for, I love it. And then, but then they, they pour you a glass of wine to, to, to complement the meal, and then they give you that. People do this, right? Professional uh, Taste people do this. I forget that the phrase, whatever it is, uh, wine connoisseurs, they do this, right? They get, they get wine and then they say, try this piece of cheese with it. Try this piece of fruit with it. Try this thing with it because they, this is sweet and then this goes like this and the things go together and it's a taste sensation. This is how the Bible works. Is you, uh, you eat the meal and you, you get the old wine 
infused into the flavor of the meal, but then when you taste the new wine, you're blown away. Your eyes are opened up. You say, this is incredible. This is what it's all about. This, you don't throw away the meal you had. You still keep the meal you had, but you realize the, the, the drink is the thing that completes it all, the thing that makes it all make sense together. And some people come into the Christian faith, they, 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 they get the old wine first, right? Someone's Jewish background, the old law. They, they, they come in that way, and then they get a glimpse, so they get a little, a little taster of the new, new wine. They're like, whoa, what is this? Some people, they, they, they come in, a lot of us, not Jewish background, you come in through the new wine, and you're all about Jesus. You're like, yeah, Jesus is awesome. But you're a little confused about the old wine. Like, I don't get that. don't understand that. And you start tasting it. You go, oh, wait a second. Oh, I'm starting to put together the connecting points here. See, Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 5, or this verse in Matthew chapter 5, he says, I've not come to abolish the law. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is not something you add to your life. It's not just a little sprinkling that you, you pour in. Jesus is somebody who completes your life. He completes your life. He makes everything in your life make sense and fit together perfectly. This sermon, in large part, is about understanding the value of fasting and why we fast today. I want you to leave with that and, and actually take fasting seriously. But it's bigger than that. This sermon is way bigger than that. It's about learning to look with the lens of Jesus. I'm going to look at some of you through my little lens here. All right? It's learning to look at Scripture with the lens of Jesus. Understanding Jesus does transform things. There are some, and this is why you can't just get rid of the Old Testament, nor can you just slap Jesus on top of it. It's a mosaic that fits together in a beautiful way because there are some things that Jesus takes us back to that are eternal things, like, for example, marriage and divorce, right? At their time, they had screwed up marriage and divorce, and they had all these extra things added to it. And Jesus goes, no, wait, 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 wait. We've got to go all the way back to Genesis 1 to understand how this works. And he restores what marriage should have been from the very beginning. So he doesn't just get rid of stuff. He fulfills it, but he does transform certain things. He never, never softens sin. Some people will try and do this with Jesus. Well, Jesus is just so nice and loving. Surely he'd allow certain things. He never, don't do that. Don't be, be smarter than that. Jesus never does that. But here's what he does transform. He transforms our understanding of salvation. This is the biggest thing. This is the biggest work of Jesus. The old and the new work together informing a picture of our understanding of salvation, what it means to be saved from our own evil, saved from the evil of the world, saved from the powers of darkness around us, saved in every way, saved from God's judgment against sin. If you hear the term that Jesus is the Lamb of God and you don't know the Old Testament, what do you think? If you, th if you hear, you, hear, you go and come into church for the first time, you don't know anything about Christianity, and you hear Jesus is the Lamb of God, you're like, Jesus is so cute. Man, I just, he's like a little lamb. Just want to hug him, and he's so fluffy. What oh, a fluffy Jesus, right? Just rainbows and fairies and, and little lambs, Jesus, you know, just I love Jesus. But if you know the Old Testament, to be called the Lamb of God means this in the, in the first covenant, they had to bring a lamb, and they had to slaughter the lamb. 
and they had to use the blood of the lamb to take away their own sin. Their sin was transferred from them, taken from them, and put on the animal as an animal sacrifice, and the animal was judged, and they were free of their sin. That's the old covenant picture of salvation. Now, you may say that's barbaric. That's ancient religion. How crazy. How could they do that? Isn't, doesn't that prove that God's not real? Animal sacrifice? Are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. And you still sacrifice animals today. If you take modern medicine, do you know how many animals were killed so that you could have life and have health? Do you understand that? How many mice have been murdered so that you could have your cold healed? So that you could take pain medication, so you could... We still, we still have animal sacrifice, you just don't see it. Animal sacrifice has always been happening to transfer the problems from the human race onto animals. And we still do it today. If you take medicine, you believe in animal sacrifice. Animals have died and suffered so that you could be healed. And this is a picture of the gospel. This is a picture of the gospel that Jesus now has become the lamb, which doesn't mean he's some cute, fluffy animal, it means he was slaughtered. His blood was shed. It means your sin was taken from you and transferred onto him. Which means if you try and mix new with old, you're going to break it. If you try to bring your lamb, you try to bring your offering, your sacrifice to pay for your sin, you'll be destroyed. Because no person's righteousness can ever add up enough to set you free. It's only the sacrifice of Jesus. It's only the blood of the lamb that can set you free. And that's called faith. The other one is works. I bring my offering. Is my offering acceptable enough? Will God accept the offering of the lamb that I bring? The new covenant says he is the lamb. And you put your hope, your faith in that. And only your faith can save you. Because your faith is in a work that you did not do. It's in a work that Jesus did. Do you understand it? Do you believe it? If you don't believe it, repent. You could walk out of this building and get run over by a bus, by a truck, not by a train, although you just walk too far to get to the train. Repent, turn from your sin, put your faith in Jesus alone. Alone, he's the Lamb of God who died for your sin. What happened to Derek Hamilton, our friend who was incarcerated wrongly for 20 years? And how does it relate to what I'm saying? Derek said it was his faith in Jesus and his marriage to Nicole that got him through those dark years. Eventually, the main witness that they had used her testimony to put him away, she recanted. And she confessed under oath that she had been pressured by the chief detective to testify against him, otherwise she would be put away for another crime. It's a horrible Horrible, true story. In 2011, Derek was finally released from prison. He crossed the road, went into a church, and thanked God for his freedom. He was awarded a multi-million dollar payout. He also now helps other people who have been wrongly convicted. He estimates that about 2% of the prison population have been falsely convicted of crimes, and he works to help others to be freed as he was. Of course, this story, in large part, is a story of injustice. But that's not the reason I'm telling it, because it's also a story of a husband and wife forcibly being, having to live separated, and of a bride longing, waiting, working, hoping, full of sorrow and sadness, 
waiting for her bridegroom to be returned to her. When Derek was in prison, his parents died. He couldn't go to the funeral. His kids that he had from a previous marriage, they graduated. He couldn't go. They had birthdays. He missed every single birthday. He didn't just miss key events. He missed every single life event. There was no celebrating for Derek during those dark years. He knew sorrow. And the mourning he experienced over those years, the payout that he got from the city, it could never take that away. You can't get that back. But now that he had been, now that he has been released, and now that he has that payout, and now that he and Nicole now have their own child together, and they're reunited, their season of fasting is over. Their season of sorrow is over. And so now they can feast. Derek, with another, a friend of his that he met in prison, who was also falsely incarcerated, who also got his charges reversed. Once they're both out, they started a restaurant together, the Brownstone in uh, Brooklyn, New York, and they've literally turned their sorrow into feasting. And that's the point of telling you this story, is this life is like a prison for us, isn't it? This life is like a prison. We're separated from our spouse, from our groom, from Jesus. We're longing for Jesus. We can't wait to be with Jesus. We need Jesus. More than we need anything else, we need Jesus. We're longing for him. And we have visitations, right? He sent the Spirit. Of course, we have moments of bliss. We have moments of feasting. We break our fast and we feast. But Jesus is he's in heaven and we're here and we're going to see him one day, and this is the season of fasting, so we must fast. We fast to get closer to him. Maybe, maybe you fast just once or twice a year. At the very least, do that. Even in the Old Testament, they, they fasted once a year. At the very least, we could do that. But now, in this new covenant of grace, surely all the more we're longing all the more. Surely we can fast all the more. Maybe you fast monthly or weekly or... The, 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 the frequency isn't necessarily the key. The key is that we deny ourselves, that we're saying no to the pleasures of this world, no to the things of this world, no to the things that we think sustain us or give us meaning or satisfy us. We're saying no to those things and we're saying yes to Jesus, that he's the only thing that sustains us. Fasting is not joyful and it's not supposed to be joyful. It's a pain in the neck, but we're, we're aching. As we fast, we're aching for Jesus. So let's also make sure that when we break our fast, that we, when we feast that we're actually enjoying feasting. That every taste we have of the food that God blesses us with, every good thing that we have in this life, we have so many good things from God, don't we? Think about it. If this life is a season of fasting, a season of sorrow because the bridegroom has been taken, think about it. All the good things we have, think about how good they can be, and they can be very good at times, how much greater heaven is going to be. It's just a glimpse. Every, that's, how you, that's how you enjoy the good things of this life, and they're not, they don't become enslaving to you. They don't become addictions to you. Is that when you experience those joyful pleasures of this life, you realize, if this is good, how much greater is it going to be to be face-to-face with Jesus, the one I'm truly longing for?